Welcome to uh, Does Our DNA Define Us? My name is Sandy Starr, and I work for the Progress Educational Trust, which is a charity that improves choices for people affected by infertility and genetic conditions. The question of whether and how humans are defined by their biological inheritance has been vexed and controversial, both scientifically and politically, since long before the function and structure of the DNA molecule were established in the mid-20th century. Now that our ability to study and manipulate DNA is becoming ever more sophisticated, the question is as vexed and as controversial as ever, and we're here today to discuss a provocative new book whose answer to the question, does our DNA define us, is yes. The subtitle, well, the title of the book is Blueprint, and it's got a remarkable subtitle, uh, the subtitle is How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, not whether DNA makes us who we are, and not how DNA makes us what we are, it's how DNA makes us who we are, which is, I think, quite a remarkable subtitle. Uh, we're very fortunate to have the author of the book, Professor Robert Plomin, speaking with us today. Robert is Professor of Behavioural Genetics at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. He's been working in this field for decades perhaps the world's most prominent behavioural geneticist, and a protagonist in many debates about genetics in scientific circles, in policy circles, in educational circles, and now with this book and at this festival in the public arena. Uh, offering a different perspective to Robert, we're also very fortunate to have Dr Philip Ball. Uh, Phil is an award-winning author of more than 20 popular science books and an editor uh, author and broadcaster in a wide range of popular and specialist outlets. He writes and speaks about pretty much every field of natural science you care to think of, including the one we're discussing today. So Phil will help us explore the subject in the round. And the three of us are going to have a fairly uh, informal, free-flowing discussion uh, of the book for the next 20 minutes or half an hour. And then after that, I will start bringing in questions and comments from the audience. So let's begin. Robert, yours is a book of two halves, really. Mm -hmm. The first half is about what you and your colleagues have uh, discovered about uh, how DNA relates to humanity. And the second half is about new possibilities opened up by technology um, and so forth. But can you just, let's take those in turn. Can you tell us in a nutshell what the first half of your book is arguing? Yeah, well, the, my, the question that's always interested me is why are people are so different? You know, why are they different in personality? learning ability, and mental health and illness. And from graduate school in the early 70s, I was interested in the possibility that inherited DNA differences account for some of the differences we observe. Back then, it was dangerous professionally and sometimes even personally to even mention genetics. Environmentalism so dominated psychology that we were actually taught, I and mean, it's hard to believe now, we were taught that schizophrenia is caused by what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. Genetics didn't get a look in. And now, over these 40 years, a lot of data have been collected using indirect methods like the twin method, comparing identical and non-identical twins, and adoption methods, comparing kids who are adopted away from their birth parents, for example. And it's really created a mountain of evidence that's convinced most scientists of the importance of inherited DNA differences in most any traits you want to study, not just psychology or physiology, but medical traits, everything. In fact, on average, for all traits across all the sciences, about 50% of the differences between people 
can be ascribed to these inherited DNA differences. But those are indirect methods. And um, uh, the second part of the book is about the DNA revolution. But so the first part of the book provides the uh, background understanding what I just said and then the evidence for some of these conclusions about the importance of inherited DNA differences. But the main thing, kind of addressing what you said about the title of the book, is that um, we're talking about what causes individual differences in a population at a particular time with a particular mix of genetic and environmental differences. So we're describing differences as they exist within the normal range. We're not talking about a, a genetic mutation that can drastically change behavior, nor are we talking about the extremes of the environment like abuse and neglect. We're talking about the differences that exist in our culture and the extent to which they make a difference. So those are important caveats, I think, to this general finding that DNA is the major systematic force. That's what I'm trying to say with this mm -hmm. book. The environment, though, accounts for the other half. Mm -hmm. But the environment's very different from the uh, environment that environmentalists thought was so important, and that's nurture, the idea of systematic family environmental influences. In general, what I'm saying is that if you had been adopted at birth, reared in a different family, gone to a different school, had different friends, had a different job, you would be essentially the same person that you are. That sounds crazy, but identical twins reared apart are clones. When they're brought back together, they're amazingly similar. And there's this amazing film coming out next month called Three Identical Strangers about identical twins who had been adopted apart and only found out about it when they were in college. I can tell you more about that, but it's just dramatic how similar these separated identical twins are when they are brought together. So you've said that uh, people in your field and, and in science generally, seem to, there seems to be more of a consensus on what you're arguing than, than there was when you, when you began, when it was somewhat taboo. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I realise it's the product of decades of, of research, but I think I should say you sound, uh, in the book and in person, very, very confident when you, make, when you make this argument. I mean, what would it take hypothetically to persuade you you were wrong? Yeah, no problem. You know, there's this crisis, replication crisis in science where a lot of sciences, I don't know about physics, but certainly chemistry, drugs, you know, are experiencing this um, real um, <coughs> crisis of confidence because things aren't replicating. The results I'm talking about have been replicated over 50 years. So the way to prove it wrong is just to find a trait that's reliably measured, sufficiently powered, that shows no genetic influence. Simple. Okay. But I have no, you know, you're not going to do it because everything that's been studied, students come and say, oh, I'd like to study this trait that hasn't been studied before. Is it heritable? I say, save your, save your time. You know, it is heritable. Ask more interesting questions. I'll bring Phil in in a second. Forgive me if this is a naive question. Is that a property of the concept trait? I mean, is it, is it possible to uh, construct a concept of a, straight, of a trait that wouldn't then sort of ineluctably be heritable, be shared by people between yeah. generations. Well, that raises a good point. What do I mean by trait? I mean yeah. reliable individual differences. A lot of people, a lot of you probably mean like human traits or characteristics like frontal vision or bipedalism. These are things that don't really vary at that general level, evolutionary level. So that 99% of our DNA, uh, our, our three billion base pairs of DNA don't differ. That's what makes us human. I'm talking about just that 1% of DNA that differs between us. And to what extent does that make us difference? So we're only talking about differences. Height is 90% heritable. That means of the differences in height in this room, 90% of those differences between people are due to inherited DNA differences. It doesn't mean that 90% of your height is due to DNA. 
Okay. Phil, do you go along with this? <laughs> Um, well, first of all, I want to say I'm I'm not the other side. Um, no, fair and uh, this and this isn't a battle because I think that what Robert is saying in this book is very important, is convincing, and it's absolutely crucial that we have these discussions about what the science is now showing us clearly and unequivocally. Uh, I think um, my some of my concern is about the framing, and you mentioned you talked about the title, and um, I worry that this notion that is often sort of put out, that DNA makes us who we are, I worry that that sends out the wrong message. Mm -hmm. um, and th th there are several reasons why uh, I would say that. One is purely developmentally, that it seems very clear that um, during development, events happen as the brain is wired up that are not encoded and not interpretable from the genes. The genes bias that process, mm -hmm. but they don't determine it. And you know, p people, uh, uh, cognitive psychologists and, and neuroscientists um, uh, say this very clearly. Um, you cannot tell how your brain is going to be wired up. And accidents in that process give you something that is innate because it's hardwired, but it's not genetically encoded. So I think development is one issue that, you know, I think needs to be factored into this equation. But also, it, it's, um, in terms of the environment, I think the discussion needs to be quite carefully posed. I mean, Robert, you said, for example, if we had been adopted from birth, any of us, and put it uh, you know, in a different family, we would be the, the, the same people we are. Essentially. Uh, well, then I think we need to be very careful because yeah. you know, I have intimate experience of adoption, as I'm sure you do, because you've done these adoption studies. And I know that people who are adopted, that is an essential part of how they define themselves, of how they think about themselves. And clearly, that's not genetically encoded. And I think what you, you're saying is that the, your genetics play a very important role in giving you a basic set of traits, of propensities, that will determine, in, in large part, how you deal with your situation, how you deal, for example, with being adopted. So d people who are adopted will have very different responses to that mm -hmm. um, because of their, what, is, what is innate in them. But the fact of their adoption is an, in is an incredibly important part of how they define themselves mm -hmm. and has behavioral consequences that are specific to adoption. And I think that's actually true for most of us, that who we are is inevitably linked to the life we have led. Um, you know, you say um, that you, uh, you're not talking about the extremes of abuse and neglect and so on, but actually... I don't think those extremes are rare. We know they're not rare. We know that abuse and trauma is common. Most people experience a traumatic event. About 8% of the population have the symptoms of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, so, you know, clearly environment can play a huge role in, in how we deal with what life has dealt us. But our genes give us the, 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 the predisposition to deal with that. So that's the nuance I want to get in. I'll let you respond, Robert. Okay, good. Well, there's so many points to respond to there. And, you know, I'm glad in general that, you know, you're not, um, you're not at all taking a knee-jerk reaction against this. I know to the contrary that, you know, you're generally, I mean, and the, and the nuances you're talking about are important. But I would like to say, say, taking the last point first, that uh, first of all, we shouldn't use the word innate or determined. In the book, I carefully avoid that. We're talking about influences. So weight is highly heritable. You might be surprised to learn. Maybe 70% of the differences between weight in this population and in most populations that have been studied is due to inherited DNA differences. But 
you can obviously lose weight. You know, the, lock me in a closet, don't give me food, mm. I lose weight. What we're talking about is the differences that exist in the population at that time, not a trivial subset. So if abuse is part of that, we're taking it into account and it's not making a systematic difference. It's not shared by kids in a family. It could be one of these. So the environment's very important, but it's not what environmentalists thought is important. Shared nurture. That's why we use the word nurture from Freud onwards. So I think that's an important distinction um, that we're talking about sources of individual differences in a population. What is rather than what could be. I, I think that's an important clarification because you do, you do make it clear in your book that there is room in your outlook for human agency and that uh, uh, inheritance and heritability and, and DNA is about what is at a particular point in time, not what could be. It's probabilistic and it's not deterministic. So I, th I think that's important. So much so, I think we really ought to emphasize that. So that's why you don't use the words determined or fatalistic mm -hmm. or that sort of thing. So, you know, as with weight, I know that I actually have a very high genetic um, score for weight, 94th percentile. Okay, I'm, I'm not skinny, um, but I'm at the 70th percentile. So, okay. it, you know, if I, I, can, I find that information motivating in my battle of the bulk, you know, so <laughs> I'm trying to avoid being this genetic fatty. And um, so <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's just that other things being equal, I'm more likely to put on weight and have trouble losing it than some of you lucky skinny people. Okay, we'll, we'll get, in a moment, I do want to ask a little bit more about polygenic scores and what they mean. But just before we do that, there's a nettle I'd like to grasp. So you pointed out that you know, early in your career, 40 or 50 years ago, it was effectively taboo uh, in psychology to talk about the influence of, of genetics. Do you have some appreciation as to why it was taboo? Oh, yes. Well, I'm sure you're getting into the history. I am getting into the yeah, history. of genetics. And um, it, psychology in, in the ninth, you know, really the modern psychology began in the early 1900s. And um, I'll give you the short version of this. In the, the 1920s, behaviorism came along. It was a reaction against philosophical psychology, where you understand psychology by contemplating your navel. And they said, no, we have to be objective and empirical, and then only look at objective behaviors. So that's where the word behaviorism came from. But it, it not necessarily, it didn't have to be, but it became associated with environmentalism. Mm. Because you study rats, for example, and you do something to them, and you look at a response. So the environment is the environment out there and what happens to you. And they began to think that's what uh, affects behavior. They weren't even studying individual differences. Okay. You know? So that's the history, and that's why environmentalism became important, even though there were a few early genetic studies. But then something else happened in the 30s. Well, I, want to, I just want to mention one more thing about that. I don't want this whole session to be about the history. but I do. So obviously, you know, in your book, you, you credit Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, as being the founder of your discipline of behavioral genetics. Obviously, uh, Galton is also the very man who coined the term eugenics. Um, he originally wanted to call that school of thought viriculture, which was sort of the cultivation of good human stock, much as you talk about agriculture or horticulture, but with human beings. Um, but he, he founded this, this school of thought called eugenics, uh, there is a passing reference to eugenics on one page of your book as a sort of misguided concern uh, during, the, during the early 20th century, and, and the two aren't connected. So do you not think there's, if only to get it out of the way, because people are going to raise it, as I just have, is there, not, is there not a need to just reckon with that history in some way? Well, you know, why is it that genetics is bad and environment is good? Some of the worst atrocities have been committed by totalitarian regimes that believe the environment is all-powerful. Mm -hmm. Think Stalin, Mao, 
and North Korea now, for example. Mm -hmm. Those are environmental positions. So, to, you know, in April of last year, Nature had an editorial that was brilliant. It said modern genetic research should no longer have to deal with these issues. Okay. And that's, why, and that's why you haven't. <laughs> could, could I also yes, please say, no, I, please. I, I, I think, Robert, um, I think you'd say somewhere in this book that what you have found has no obvious policy implications. No um, necessary policy. And yes, no necessary policy. And so I think that's the important point, okay. point to make, that... Um, that one can read it different ways. That there, you know, one could 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 read this as saying there's no point in interv intervening in the environment because people are what they are, and you know, there, there's no point pouring money into um, you know education or helping people who are disadvantaged because you know that's just how things are. But that doesn't follow at all, and I think you make this very clear. It doesn't follow mm -hmm. at all mm -hmm. from from um, from these results. And in fact, in some ways, you know, one could argue the contrary. One could yes. argue that this shows you where interventions can be most effective. And I think that's a valuable okay. point to make and, you know, it, it really takes it away from this notion of eugenics being somehow, you know, destiny and that there is some genetic underclass and all of that okay. baggage that comes from the past. I, Thank you. I take that point, but I did, I did think it was an important nettle to grasp and if people do want to explore it, we can. It's not off the table. Right. Um, what is a polygenic score, Robert? Um, the, the DNA revolution came about about, you know, 10 years ago. I've been trying to find genes for these traits that are heritable for about 25 years without success. And that was because we were th uh, thinking that we'd just be looking for a few genes. Like, what causes the 90% heritability of height? You know, it's reasonable to think, you know, you can come up with candidate genes and maybe a dozen or so. But when we use these new approaches called genome-wide association, where you look across the genome in an atheoretical way, you look at hundreds of thousands of DNA markers across the genome, to try and identify which bits of the genome are contributing to a trait, those first studies weren't successful. Mine, I did three such studies that weren't successful. And, and then we realized that the biggest effects are so much smaller than anyone ever thought. For common traits, like we study in psychology, and common disorders, you know, like psycho psychological disorders. Mm -hmm. So that was the big step forward. And then in the last few years, people have realized that to get these tiny, tiny effects, you're going to need huge samples. Mm -hmm. And that's where the success has come. Uh, for example, in my area of educational achievement, there was a, um, a couple months ago a study published with one in, over one million people in the study. And I know you, you maybe don't know about power, but once you get up to those sample sizes, you have the power to detect really tiny effects. So mm -hmm. you can scoop up these small effects. Up until that point, you don't see anything because there aren't any big, bigger effects that you mm -hmm. can detect with smaller studies. So that's been the huge advance. But then what do you do with it? We're talking about not 10, 100, 1,000, or even 10,000 DNA differences. We're talking about tens of thousands of DNA differences that contribute to the traits we're studying. You know, all of them have tiny effects. A lot of them have infinitesimally tiny effects. Mm. But what you do is you add them together, like you do items on a scale, and together they become powerful predictors. Okay. You, you that's give a polygenic score. That's a polygenic score. You give examples of um, your own polygenic scores for both physiological and psychological traits. And interestingly, you, uh, well, you've already mentioned one of them. You discuss two areas where you, had a, where you were at a high, uh, correct me if I use the wrong vocabulary, propensity or in a higher percentile, mm -hmm for problems you do not actually have, um, obesity and schizophrenia, respectively. Mm -hmm. But you think it's nonetheless useful to you or, or valuable that you 
that that happened mm -hmm. in some way. Is that, is that correct? Well, that's right. I think that's the way the DNA revolution is going to hit psychology is in terms of these polygenic scores. Right now, they're not that predictive, but he, two years ago, we could predict 5% of the variance of GCSE scores with DNA alone. Last year, 10%. Last month, 15%. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's still a long way from 100%. But as predictors go in the behavioral sciences, that is a very powerful predictor. That's better than you can do knowing parents' educational attainment. How about Ofsted ratings of school quality? How much variance do they explain in GCSE scores? Less than 2%. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying it's terrific, but this is really happening now, which is why I wanted to write the book, why we wanted to have this conversation, you know, to launch the discussion, and then I hope the book gives people the DNA literacy they need to join the conversation. But just before I bring Phil in, I mean, I'm glad you've brought up education, which is one of the most contentious uh, uh, areas you, you've discussed uh, over your career. But this, this idea of you, you had these high scores for problems you don't actually have. Um, so, you, you know, you referred before to an era where psychology was about discovering things by contemplating uh, one's navel. I'm, I'm concerned one might end up contemplating one's bulge uh, with a high polygenic score for obesity, and, and it wouldn't necessarily, well, you think it would improve your life or your health. Uh, could it not make you a valetudinarian? Well, the, um, the idea that I'm, I, I don't, actually, I do meet standards of obesity. A BMI of 31 puts you into a category of obesity. But the main point we're trying to make with these scores, there are no disorders. Genetically speaking, they're all continua. These polygenic scores are perfectly normally distributed. There's no cutoff point for schizophrenia, autism, ADHD, or anything. Mm -hmm. It's a continuum. So I, on that continuum, where we usually label the top 1% phenotypically, I mean, th that you observe as schizophrenic, say, for example, um, I'm at the 85th percentile, which is a long way from that extreme. But mm -hmm. the more important point is just to, to say there are no disorders. There are just quantitative dimensions. And that has a lot of good aspects to it. It's not like those schizophrenics and us normal. We all have thousands of genes that contribute to schizophrenia. It's a question of how many you have. Okay. And by thinking about it quantitatively, some neat things come out, like one of the recent really hot areas is a link with creativity. Okay. And maybe schizophrenia is just getting a little too far outside the box. Phil, there's two directions you could take this now. I don't mind which one you do. Either we can talk about education, because um, you've written about uh, uh, you know, controversies around Robert's work in education, or about how we classify disease. Mm. Your choice. Well, yeah, both are very interesting. Well, maybe let's, get, let's stick with education, because we're, we're, a lot of this is talking about traits. And also, there is something that concerns me, and I think concerns you as well, that, that is coming out of this, um, to do with the, this notion of prediction. You, you, you're very careful in saying the predictability you're talking about is in terms of variance w within populations. Um, I think that a lot of people will understand predict prediction as being forecasting what my child will do in their GCSEs or in their educational attainment generally. Um, and I think you're, I think, you, you know, I'm, I'm not accusing you of, of, of uh, mm -hmm. implying that. I think that the, the, the problem has to be phrased so carefully because that is the natural tendency uh, for us to, 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 to think in terms of. And in particular, what concerns me is that, and I think you, know, you can foresee this as well, once this, uh, this facility is there for making some kind of prediction, statistical prediction, from an individual's genetic genomic profile, 
there will be companies who will do that, who will offer that service, who will, who will tell you what your child, they will suggest, what your child is going to achieve. And then you will want to know why your child isn't achieving that. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you say, you, you, show, you show the pictures of these very broad distributions yeah. that you're talking about. And it's completely possible that if your child is in the distribution of the top percentile, they could be in the trailing edge of that, below someone who is in the bottom percentile. And this is entirely consistent with what you have found out, but is, is, is not what is going to be understood. Um, so how do you think we might deal with the fact that it is likely that just as we can you know, send off to 23andMe to have our g- genomes read now, it's likely that, the, that those are going to include forecasts of what children are supposed to attain educationally. Yeah. Well, I think it's a big job for science education in general of the public. People don't understand risk. They don't understand probability. You know, we're talking about probabilistic propensities. This is not deterministic. But no predictions are. You know, like the link between blood alcohol levels and accidents is not very high. And what about predicting kids' weight? Obesity is one of our major problems. You know, from childhood, you can't predict adult weight at all. But with DNA, you can predict from birth. And all of medicine is moving towards prevention. And to prevent, you have to predict, and DNA is the best predictor around. So if, for example, um, the, uh, you knew that your child had a high genetic risk for obesity, you're going to have to say, your kid might be thin, but maybe they're at a 15-fold greater risk. So then you could say, well, we're all supposed to eat healthy, exercise, but maybe with your child, you can prevent obesity by pushing harder on that. You know, telling it's for your own good if you want to do this. So I think that's an example of how we can use this stuff, you know, in a reasonable way, but without having parents say, which I don't think they would do. They'd say, oh, my kid's going to be a genetic fatty, so forget it. I don't Mm. think parents would do that. And you think of other traits like alcoholism, for example. I'd want to know if I or my children are at high genetic risk for alcoholism because you don't become alcoholic unless you drink a lot of alcohol. If you knew you were at high genetic risk, you w- if you drink as much as your buddies, you have a risk of alcoholism, and they don't. And what worries me a lot about this is universities, I think, are experiments for finding out whether you have a genetic propensity for alcoholism, the uh, amount of alcohol that gets drunk. Well, that's, I think that's one of the things that's traditionally recommended universities. But um, uh, is, is there not a corollary of that? You're, you're in the low percentile, drink as much as you want. Is that not the outcome that's logical outcome? Well, I haven't thought about that. (laughs) And, you know, absolutely, you could become alcoholic (laughs) without a genetic propensity. Mm. So I guess that's something else you'd have to worry about. Okay. But your larger point was getting people to understand that these are probabilistic predictions. And it's Mm. really hard. People still don't understand risk, even. You know, they want zero risk. There's no such thing as zero risk, really. Well, I, I mean, it concerns me particularly about education. I think with health, you know, it's perhaps mm-hmm. a bit more clear-cut that we can do things that yeah. uh, if, if we, we have a high-risk category of some sort, we can do things that might do something about that. With education, particularly with the way, and we were talking about this before, the, the culture of education is going um, at the moment and the pressures of, of education, you suggest that um, if we, if some prediction is made of an individual's capacity to achieve, um, that if they if they then are achieving below that level, you know, this could be a way of spotting kids who are being held back by some other factor, some environmental factor, from what they could achieve. That seems to me to be a valuable thing. I think it's equally possible that um, it could end up putting a weight of expectation 
on a child from parents or from schools or whatever that actually they're not capable of fulfilling because they're just they just have turned out in a different part of the in a lower part of the distribution yeah. well two things three things i'd like to say about that labeling Please. is a bias you know and but kids know whether they're in the bluebirds or the robins you know they know about the streaming probably anyway but i mean more seriously i think there are examples like with reading if you can predict who's going to have a reading problem there are language interventions that really do work all kids most kids who have reading problems have earlier language problems you can't intervene with early reading cuz kids don't read at 3 or 4 but you could intervene with language and interventions that work are intensive and expensive you know these magic bullets that people keep, keep coming up with, you know, for 30 pounds it'll cure this problem. You know, they never work. So that would be an example. And it also addresses your other point. If you knew your kid had a low, uh, had, was at genetic risk for reading disability, that is they had a low reading ability genetic score, you wouldn't say, oh well, can't learn reading. You know, what you do is you put more energy into it. The Finnish model is a very left sort of model saying, you know, you can have it, policy depends on values, and you can have a right-wing value, which we mentioned earlier about mm -hmm. educate the best, forget the rest. The left-wing values would suggest, as they do in, in the Finnish model, that there's a certain minimal level of literacy and numeracy that you need to be particip a participant in a modern technological society. So we need to do whatever it takes to get everybody up to that level of literacy. So you're pouring your resources into the lower end of the ability spectrum. So even with education, I know it's a tough one, and the toughest one of all is intelligence, but I think where it'll work better is with like specific abilities like reading, for example. Okay, I'm gonna take some audience contributions. Can we start at the front, please, with the roving mics down in this corner. While the mic is moving down, keep your points concise so we can fit more of you in, or your question. If you want to say who you are and why you're interested in this topic, you can, but you don't have to. Speak into the microphone, speak clearly, speak concisely. I'll take questions and comments in batches. You first, sir. Hello, my name is Priya, um, and I think my only qualification is that I'm a father of two uh, lovely girls. Um, a few things, and they might be layered, and I don't have any facts to support them, but this is just coming from experience that I have with my kids. Um, I think we are talking about, so health, I can understand. If you predict health, it is good to prevent it, like obesity and everything, anything else. But psychologically, I think it is might be um, cutting the other way. So if, for example, if, if you predict a, a child has got a higher is in a higher percentile of schizophrenia or any other psychological disorder, if we start um, giving them medicine or coaching or whatever earlier on, it might backfire. Is my is my is my view on it? Okay. So I think if we if we separate physical health and psychology in terms of what genetics drives and what um, we can nurture, I think that's a I, I totally believe in nurturing um, works for a child. So um, I think a, a view on if we can uh, you know do the bit about uh, okay. psychology and. Okay, hold that thought because I'll take a couple yep. more contributions. Can I take this batch here? I'll take these two and those two and then I'll come back to our two speakers. Yes, you two. It's just a short one, really. Um, I was wondering in regards to sort of, uh, there's a, obviously a big tendency socially these days to identify as one way or another. And do you think it will, could there be an issue of people misunderstanding this and it also almost becoming a confirmation bias where they say, oh, well, I'm predetermined to be like this. In which case, that will foster negative things. We say, well, but you said it shouldn't happen, and parents should encourage kids. Well, perhaps we need to work harder to help our son or daughter not be obese. But someone actually going, well, no, I'm predetermined to be obese. So what? What the heck's the point? Sort of, or allowing themselves to be convinced that mm -hmm. they had no choice in the matter. 
Okay, gentlemen, next to you. Um, Professor Plomin, um, considering your life's uh, sort of work in, in behavioural genetics, has what you've uncovered and written about and, and what you believe and present, has this affected the way that you might morally judge or not judge a human being and their behaviour? I'd really like to know how you um, uh, might judge people. I'll take these two, the two more, and I'll come back. Yeah. I'd like to know how you account for culture, because it seems to me that one of the problems with the, tri the twin studies is they get us only so far, because you know, they're often inside the same culture, they're swimming in the same sea. Are there twin studies where the twins are raised in different cultures? Because it seems to me that culture works to mediate um, certain uh, traits within the individual and also within the society. And one final contribution, yeah. Hi, hi Robert. Uh, I, I remember you coming to the UK because 20 years ago I interviewed you for a remarkable left-wing magazine called Living Marxism. And uh, I very much appreciate your generosity in giving us that interview. Who are you? Uh, Stuart Derbyshire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's kicked off a 20-year argument with my friends. Um, when I was getting <laughs> on a plane to come back to the UK for this meeting, a mate of mine called me up and said, look, you can come, but you have to read Plowman's book. And on Wednesday afternoon, we were on his whiteboard trying to figure out if you're too tall for your polygenic score. He reckons you're 0.3% too tall. I'm not going to ask you that question. If he's here, he can ask that. My, my question is actually similar to what the person next to me asked. You have this provocative phrase in your book. You say, parents don't matter, but parents matter, but they don't make a difference. Schools matter, but they don't make a difference. And I really want to ask you what you mean by that. Because if, if what you mean by that is that they matter because they socialize people to a common level, um, then, yeah, I, I can agree with that. But that's a, a hell of a level, you know, giving them literacy, giving them language, and enabling them to read, to be able to be numerate, to be, have a basics in science, you know, brings them up to a level that's way higher than people were a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago. And, of course, all of that gets washed out in your genetic analysis because mm -hmm. all you're interested in is the variability. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of feel like you're, you're cheating a little bit because you're, you're hiding the really big influence on people, yeah. um, which is all that stuff that goes underneath Great. your analysis. Great. So I'll just, I'll just sum up what the, the contributions we've just had. Uh, there was a question about uh, prediction and whether we should distinguish psychology and physiology, whether there's an important distinction to be made there. A question about the tendency to identify in certain ways. So I, I identify as obese. My polygenic score confirms this. I, I will cleave, I will stick to that. Should we take these one by one, though? You think they're <laughs> so different, aren't they? Or what do you want to do? Um, yes, okay, fine. If that's yeah. what you'd prefer to do, Robert. Yeah, well, just trying to give short <laughs> answers to it. I mean, I don't distinguish between physical, medical, physiological, and psychological traits. It's all the same problems. And that's why psychology is going to make great advances, because it's all the brightest brains in the life sciences working on the same issues. It's the same issues for all traits across the life sciences. So I don't make that distinction. Okay. Um, Philip, do you must agree. Yes. Yes, absolutely. No, yes. <laughs> I do. Oh, well, I don't have to agree, he, he but was, I do. He was falling asleep there, <laughs> yeah. so I thought... Yeah. It's all right. Um, well, no, we can group the, the questions together a little. I mean, particularly the last uh, couple of contributions were about, uh, you know, how you, whether there's twin studies where there's radically different cultures for each twin, um, and also whether you're um, using with your phrase, uh, parents matter, but they don't make a difference, schools matter, but they don't make a difference, whether there's something you're sort of hiding or writing yeah, away. Yeah. They are sort of related. I, I agree with you that the reason we have universal education throughout the world is because that pro those processes are important. We need kids to learn the basics of, 
uh, literacy, numeracy, and uh, basically enculturation. So it's not to say that's unimportant, but it's at that level kind of like a universal. The kids are getting that. What I'm interested in is the extent to which individual differences in education make a difference in terms of their achievement. And that is related to your question about culture, too, I think, that we're only talking about differences that exist in the societies we study. And as you point out, twins are born in the same culture, more or less. There are some dramatic cases, like Oscar and Jack, the separated identical twins in the Minnesota study, one raised as a Hitler youth, and the other raised, um, I don't know, in, in a capitalist sort of country. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, they were actually just as similar as other twins. but. All bets are off if you talk about other cultures. We're only talking about what exists, so it's not what could be. You know, obviously, you could have a very different culture. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, if you change the environment and you change the genetics, you change the results. These are just descriptive statistics. But the subset of genetics and environments that we live in is not a trivial one. Okay. Phil. Well, thank you for bringing up culture, because that is definitely one of the things I wanted to um, to have aired here. And, you know, I don't disagree at all with what you say, I think, that, but that is part of why I worry <laughs> about this subtitle, because it, it does, and you, you don't really discuss culture within the book, and um, it's very clear that part of what makes us who we are, if we're going to use that phrase, a huge part of that is our culture. We, we are, you know, within a particular set of circumstances, we, we absolutely have genetic propensities that will determine how we respond Influence. to that. Influences. Okay. But, um, but, but I think um, it, it seems to me to be falling short if we are making this case that DNA is, you know, telling us who we are without taking into account yes. culture. I know that the phrase who we are it confuses people. And you're thinking of it as in sense of identity. You mentioned adoption. Well, to the extent those things are variable, you know, like kids who are adopted have a sense of identity that's very much founded on the adoption. If it, if it affects their mental health and illness, then that's an environmental factor. But you can actually study differences in identity you know, like some people are, you know, are very, uh, have a very high sense of self-esteem, for example. I know that's not exactly what you mean by identity, but if you can define it in a way that we can study it in terms of individual differences, we could actually ask to what extent do genetic factors affect individual differences in that. In identity, you know, it's a fuzzy-edged concept. I'm also thinking, though, of quite sort of specific behavioral things, like, for example, one's attitude to uh, cheating in society mm -hmm. or to trust in society. And it's very clear that there are quite different cultural um, uh, ways of, 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 of responding to those things. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I do think that's an important factor we okay. need to include. And cheating raises, relates to morality. There was a question about moral judgment, but we will yeah. park that and take some more contributions, please. Can we go immediately Sorry. behind there? See you later. Thank you. Um, I've got two questions. Um, so one is, so obviously it sort of picks up a little bit on what you've been discussing um, in terms of the relationship between individual differences, um, which obviously you're focusing on. But also I think it's, I think what can sometimes get lost is things like changes over time. And I think in, you know, we might understand the difference, but I think often this distinction will get lost in discussions. So for example, we could look at the increase in anxiety disorders in girls and, and young women, which has happened over the sort of last generation, which seems to be a real increase. Um, now, clearly, 
clearly that's not explained by, by DNA change. So we need to think about what's changed in society, you know, what ideas have changed and such like that, that's resulted in this. Now, obviously, behavioural genetic research might tell us at two points in time why those individual differences exist, but it, it doesn't help us sort of explain th those differences. And obviously, we need to be able to grasp that. And in relation to that, so given that um, things like twin studies, it, it's a snapshot at one point in time. It can tell us what's going on then. But if we're going to use that data to predict what someone's, um, you know, what might be happening sort of 20 or 30 years in the future, is that still valid um, if there have been those big social changes as well? Do, do we just need the long-term data in order to know that? Um, my other question is in relation to individual differences in environmental sensitivity. So, you know, I work with Michael Pluse who, who looks at this. Um, so environmental sensitivity as, as a trait, you know, some people are more or less sensitive to the environment, it seems. I know, it's some, you know some people think it's a controversial concept, um, but it seems to be also heritable in some ways. So for genetic reasons, some people will be more or less sensitive to the environment. Um, and I'm just wondering, and, and for, you know, examples are children who are more sensitive, uh, if you put them in sort of either good quality or, or poor quality childcare, they'll either do better or worse, whereas for the majority of children who are less sensitive, the quality of childcare doesn't make that much difference. But I'm just wondering, in, in the population level statistics, do we lose those distinctions? So you could conclude from a population level statistic that... That, that environment of early childcare doesn't make that much difference, but perhaps it does make a difference for some children more than others. Um, I'll move behind, right behind you, just to say, hiding your light under a bushel, but that was Fiona McEwen who's produced this session with me. <laughs> it's a bit um, similar in one way. Um, I mean, I was going to say, what does it matter? I mean, it, it seems that the discussion is on two levels. So you're saying it's productive predictability and its probability and, and people misunderstand it in the less um, public misunderstand it. And but then, then again, you are discussing how we could change it if we know the prediction. There are just predictions, like you said, probability. So what does it matter? Mm -hmm. I mean, why do you uh, kind of saying it's probability and then the other way is saying we could change that? Because okay. at the end of the day, it is predictability. means nothing. I will take one more contribution. If we can move a couple of rows back and across on the same side... Yeah, and then I'll come okay. back. Hi, um, I'm uh, curious by the sort of uh, the binarism of the whole sort of genetics versus uh, nurture debate because it does seem as though everything needs to be recruited on one side of an, or the other. Um, so, for instance, chance becomes um, non-shared environments. Um, but it does seem to me that there is a, um, a, a great risk that what will be recruited on the side of genetics is free will. So to give one example, if we take two twins um, and we'll say that they are like-minded people because they're twins and we put them in two different cities um, with, for instance, two different bookshops and they are both large bookshops, they will be more likely to, to get the same book, um, to follow the same interests, to maybe both of them become nuclear physicists. So what we're describing that up there, to me, sounds like, well, this is the choices that people choose because of the personalities that they have. Um, whereas a geneticist might well say, well, that is traceable back. You can trace that right back to the genes. That is how you account for that... Um, okay. ...interest okay. in the first place. But I would just suggest that society is, and for the most part, it is free wills interacting and that free will doesn't have DNA structure. You can respond straight to whatever you like, Robert, but I'll remind you, okay. if, you if, if necessary. Um, well, well, shall we start with that? that yep. we, if you put DNA on, DNA on the table, it doesn't do anything. 
It has to be an environment, and it's a, an environment that we've been evolved to expect, both within a cell, you know, we have the same DNA in all of our cells, within our body, and our extra environmental influence. So one of the most highly heritable cognitive abilities is verbal ability, which even includes vocabulary. Clearly, you're not born with vocabulary words. You have to learn those words. I have six grandchildren. One of them has just always been interested in the language channel, you know, wants to know nuances of words. And then I have another grandchild who, it's whatever, you know, it, you know what I mean, it doesn't matter. So they're using the environment to pick up differences that are like, I think the genetic differences are like nudges early on. And then they snowball as you go through life, finding environments that are correlated with your genetic propensities. It's not completely circular, though, because with DNA, what I mean by heritable is inherited DNA differences that with which you began life as a single cell, same DNA in all of our cells. What I'm talking about is the extent to which those inherited DNA differences predict, say, verbal ability. And it seems to me there's no backward causation there. Nothing in your environment, your brain, or your behavior changes your inherited DNA sequence. So that gets, for me, gets me out of that kind of loop of, well, it's all kind of correlated with everything. Can I, should we just clarify, because I think you've alluded to it, but we didn't explain it earlier. Um, you were just talking about people having a genetic, let me, tell me if I've got this wrong, genetic propensity to shape their environment. Yes. Which is your nature of nurture yes. discussion. So, Often nowadays you hear hype or, or, or interest in uh, epigenetics and about the environment affecting the way someone's genes relate to their traits, but you're far more interested in the sort of converse of how people's genes inform the way their environment relate to their traits. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. As I'm saying, that the, the genes don't, you can't, they don't do anything by themselves. Yeah. They have to work in an environment. And we're talking about the environments that are out there and the extent to which they use them. But where the, the, ch the first part of the book has five big-ish topics that have come out of behavioral genetic research beyond just saying everything's heritable. And one of those is the nature of nurture. And this came about because we studied environmental measures, thousands of environmental measures in psychology, and we studied environmental measures and found that they showed genetic influence. Like, Environmental measure that's used in thousands, 5,000 uh, social science studies is life events. Hmm. Things that happen to you, divorce, uh, financial difficulties, and that shows about 25% heritability. Hmm. And when you come at it from a genetic perspective, it just doesn't seem too weird. I mean, environments don't have DNA, so that was weird 20 years ago when we first started talking about this. But when you think about it, it's that old-time environmentalism of the environments, what happens to us from out there. But that isn't the environments that we study in psychology. Our life events, like getting in financial difficulties, having uh, conflicts with people, even getting divorced, are those things that happen to us passively? No, those are things that we are involved in. Even the weather, you say in your book. Yeah. Even the See, weather. There's the one, right? You know, Mark Twain says, you know... Um, Everyone talks about it, but no one can do anything about it. But actually, can't, is that true? It sounds like an item on a psychoticism scale to say, I can change the weather. <laughs> but think about it. You know, there's probably a c correlation between uh, your genetic tendencies and weather. Phil? B because you, you select the weather you experience. You're not changing the weather. You're changing where you are in the world. If you have example. seasonal affective disorder, you don't want to leave in England, except if, yeah. if global, and, and global warming think, keeps going on. And I think this is a really important point, and a really important point of, of, of this book, that you're deep, making more sophisticated the discussion that happens around environment. And I, it feels to me that that is very 
important. And it c comes back to this question about, you know, wh why does it matter? Why, why should we care? And I, I think that one of the things that can come from this work, and I think you, you say this clearly, is that we can be more specific about what we mean by environment and what is truly environmental. I mean, I mentioned, for example, with, with, with adoption, um, uh, that, you know, there are certain things that come from that. One is that adopted children have a higher, uh, higher incidence of behavioral problems. Um, but and it's tempting to conclude, well, that's because they were adopted. Um, but actually, you know, it, it, as I understand it, things like the Texas adoption study showed that there's a strong genetic component to this. That when we're talking about children who are adopted, you know, domestically within the U.S., they often come from families that have a difficult background that is also, to some extent, you know, maybe a history of mental health problems that is genetic. So a high proportion of this was genetic. And so what it potentially enables us to do is to separate out what is genuinely environmental and therefore amenable to intervention yeah. from, from what isn't. And I think that's a really important. So important that uh, let me emphasize the answer to your question about why does it matter. I mean, this, there's lots of answers to the question, why does this matter? I mean, for parents, for teachers, for society. But one specific example along these lines is last week in the paper, there was a study showing a correlation between books in the home and how much parents read to kids and how well kids do in reading at school. And for decades, people have interpreted that environmentally, which is not unreasonable, right? You read a lot to your kid, you have a lot of books in your home, and your kids then learn to read better and faster. But I hope after this you say, you just say, well, is it possible there's a genetic link there? And that's important because there was the implication of that paper, and there was a white paper 20 years ago where the government did the same thing. They said, right then, let, you know, assume it's environmental, it's caused by how, much, how many books you have in your house. They actually had a white paper where they were going to take vans and deliver books to houses. See, so what's good about it is if you know things, the extent to which there's genetic influence, mm. you can look for true environmental effects. So that's very important for intervention because if you did that in silly intervention, assuming it's all environmental, you'd be making a big mistake because it isn't going to work. Okay. And, and none of that is to question the idea. All right. We wouldn't usually do this, but if we could pass a microphone here. I was talking to you as a scientist. You know what probability and, and prediction means, yes, as a scientist. But when you're explaining to people in the lay public, you're then using as the same way that other people understand it, as if we have predictions, then maybe if we change uh, uh, some behavior, then people will feel better kind of, kind of uh, things. So you are using predictions and probability, which in science means just that, you know, the probability of having two, uh, the, you know, when you throw something and then mm -hmm. it falls in one place. This is a probability. Well, it doesn't determine. But when yeah. you follow these questions, it's always about how we could change our behavior. And how, so you, you end up discussing the same level that's, as... That's not quite what I'm saying, though. I'm not saying, how do you change the behavior? I'm saying as a parent, if you know there's strong genetic... If you think everything's environmental and that kids are a blob of clay you mold to be what you want them to be, you're in for a lot of trouble as a parent. Okay, hold that thought. Let's take a couple more contributions. Sorry, you with I'll the microphone, please. Okay, so just on that point, I, I, I kind of am sympathetic to that point because, you know, is it probabilistic or is it deterministic? Because there's all this discussion now in nature and, and so on about the new storm of, of uh, the old uh, GWAS or Genomic Association Study polygenic risk scores. They were rubbish and, and they were. They had no predictive utility whatsoever. But the new storm that's just come out in the last sort of six months or so is that we will use genomic risk scores and it will get better. I mean, I think that's part of your argument. 
argument, right, that going forward the new technology will mean that, that, that these um, genomic polygenic risk scores will get better. So my, my sympathy to that point is that, you know, if, if, if the polygenic risk score... I've got two points, sorry. One is how no, good... No, just stick to one, because we'll need to get a couple more people in. We didn't OK. Uh, it's very briefly... One is that you're focusing on differences, and, 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 and a consequence for, for me that's a problem is that uh, you and, and lots of other people uh, um, are not focusing on the, the, the signal. So whether it's genetics or whether it's social sciences or education, I think education should be left to educational um, experts who know about teaching. So, for example, if you talk about... I mean, it's fair enough being interested in individual differences, and I understand the point you're making, the qualification you're making, but there's something like that's called the Flynn effect. Are you not interested in that because IQ has gone up since the Second World War by 15 um, IQ points every generation. That could be 100% social. That's content. The okay. other thing is how good are these scores, right? Okay. It's, it, it, because you're wrong, I think, about... So there's huge controversy amongst geneticists about whether the polygenic risk score applies to cancer. And if you use the liability okay. model, you come up with Got the wrong, wrong conclusion. There's we'll, genetic heterogeneity We'll be picking up cancer. on that in the next session. But meanwhile, can we go right to the back, actually... A uh, lady with a hand up. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I have a question about sexuality and um, genes. So I wanted to ask you, would you say that sexual orientation is a behavioral trait? And if yes, what do you think would be the consequences at a social level um, if we start dealing with with heterosexuality, homosexuality, all kinds of sexuality as something derived from a specific um, pattern of genes. Okay. There's another one around there. Can we go up again um, or slightly across? Oh, yes, that's correct. Yep. Uh, the question is if the predictive ability is continuing to increase and it's now more predictive than the quality of the schools, could you see a situation where uh, a country reallocates its resources to children who have the highest potential probability to succeed and reduce resources for others. Okay. And just one other, similarly for insurance companies, for life insurance, would you, do you see that as being a potential issue that has to be addressed where insurance companies would just choose not to insure people that they know are high risk? Okay, we'll take one more coming slightly further down. Yes. Hello. Um, I just want to know what are the practical, what's the practical means of doing data profiling? Is it very quick? Do you put it through a computer and it's instantly there, or is it a matter of a team of people analysing one person's data for a week? And um, in addition to that, do you worry if the data is easily achievable? What implications that has for um, big data or even private companies? So, kind of Ancestry.com. I'm not saying it's a sinister organisation, but people voluntarily give their DNA to that organisation organization, how could that then be used by private companies in the way of big data, um, in the way of Cambridge okay. Analytica? I love that last question. I Please know Phil has up. a lot to say about that as well. Yeah. And, you know, so how easy it is to get these scores. And right now, you know, 4 million people have paid their 100 bucks to get it from 23andMe. You spit in a tube, you get it back electronically in four to six weeks. And you can't get polygenic scores, though, yet. A lot mm -hmm. of that's oriented towards major gene effects, and mostly, as, as Phil has said in some of his things about the dangers of genomic testing, 
I think you yourself or other people, you just end up finding you don't have these rare single gene disorders. You know, it's all right. That's something. As you pointed out, though, most people do it for ancestry data, which is a completely different issue from what I'm talking about. But what is beginning to happen is companies are springing up who take, uh, like DNA Land is one. It's not particularly good, but it's, they allow you to download your 23andMe genotypes and upload it to their system, and they give you polygenic scores. They're not particularly good, but at least they're nonprofit. And it's a, a, a university in New York, and um, they're, they're getting better, and they show you exactly what they did. They give you the paper. They show you the results they used to create the polygenic score. So they're moving in the right okay. direction. Um, but, uh, well, Phil, did you want to speak to that the larger I'm, issue of testing? And I'm going to ask you to actually um, pick up on whatever you like that's been said by the audience, but also offer a closing thought, because unfortunately we're about to run out of time. <laughs> I'll start with you, Phil, and then I'll move back to you, Robert. Um, I guess um, it, I think it's so important that we're having this discussion. It's actually an urgent discussion. I think that's become clear. Um, and what part of the urgency is about communicating the nuances of what this really means um, into a landscape that, sadly, I think, has um, been previously given a sort of sense of genetic determinism. Yeah. Um, so it's really sort of combating that. But I think that at the same time, and perhaps this relates to some of the um, points that were made in um, the last questions, at the same time, it feels to me very important that this doesn't let us lose sight of what we can do now to improve things in education, things in health that we know how to do. Um, that, you know, we know <laughs> it's not that complicated to, to tell people what they need to do generally to improve their health. It, we, we do know that there are educational interventions that can be made or, or ways of educating people that can uh, be made in schools generally that improve education. I think that is clear and I, I would worry that if, if genetics becomes a sort of diversion from things that we know we can do something about now and we're, we're not doing that already. Mm -hmm. Your closing thoughts, Robert. Okay, well, I, I agree with that completely. And I know a lot of you ask questions that are very important we didn't get around to. I'll be doing a book signing after this. Immediately after. And I would say, one thing I'd like to say in closing is yes. that you should go to this next this session. When is it, at um, 4? Uh, um, no, there's one at 2 p.m. on Can Genomics Revolutionize yeah. the NHS? NHS and genomics. That is such an important topic because right now a lot of our concerns about direct-to-consumer testing like 23andMe, people get results back. As Phil has written about, you know, you get results, bad news results. There's no counseling offered for you. You know, it can be bad. But what's terrific is the possibilities of polygenic scores and the DNA revolution for the NHS to justify the NHS. Because how are you going to deal with this in the U.S. with an insurance-based, money-oriented um, system? Because, you know, for example, cardiovascular risk now has suddenly gotten to be quite, you know, predicted with DNA. The insurance companies are going to drop you. Why should they carry you if you have this... Uh, high genetic risk for cardiovascular disease. We distribute the risk with the NHS, and we have nice to make decisions, you know, that we're going to have to triage services. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. can't do everything for everybody. But the ability to predict and prevent problems is just so important economically, personally, and socially that I, um, Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, says a few years from now, looking back, it's going to be thought unethical that we haven't done this. Okay, to thank our two brilliant speakers, Robert Plowman and Philip Ball. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.